This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. Today, I am joined by Professor Kevin Tempe. Professor, uh, Professor Tempe teaches philosophy at Calvin University. His latest book, Disability and Inclusive Communities, is from Calvin Shorts. Kevin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. So with all my guests, I like to get an origin story. And I'm curious, um, how did you end up in philosophy and how did you become a philosophy professor? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And it's one that I sometimes will share with my own students. Um, when I started college, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was fairly good at science and fairly good at math. And I remember thinking, and I was false in my thought here, but I remember thinking, well, the only thing you can really do with math is teach and I don't wanna teach, so I'll go science. And so I was pre-med my first year and I took uh, biology with lab, chemistry with lab, physics with lab, and some gen ed course in the fall. And in my spring semester, I took biology two with lab, chemistry two with lab, physics two with lab, and for gen ed requirements, I took an ethics course. And I remember thinking, wait, here's a discipline that not only permits me to keep asking all these questions, but actually encourages it. And it wants me to engage in the kind of thinking that like, I didn't really know there was a place to. This is really cool. And I had, you know, like, I, as I said, I was, I was fairly good at science, but I, I wasn't super passionate about it. And so that summer, I changed my major to philosophy. Um, I remember my parents asking me, well, okay, but what are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I don't know. And they gave me the space to just pursue it. I graduated and I thought, huh, you know what? Like, I haven't figured everything out yet. Imagine that, thinking I hadn't figured out everything in three and a half years. So I applied to a number of uh, PhD programs in graduate school. And I was denied admittance to every single one of them. And I thought, well, okay, what do I do now? I can take a year off and work somewhere, or I can maybe try to get a master's. Uh, and the college I went to was associated with the Nazarene denomination, a branch off of Methodism. And their seminary had just started a research master's, which was about um, 48 credits. 24 of which were electives, and the other 24 were broken down between uh, historical theology, systematic theology, and biblical interpretation. So I went and in two years did all the philosophy that I could, and that was good enough to get me into a number of PhD programs, and I went to St. Louis University. I've been pretty fortunate to get jobs um, teaching at, at schools. Uh, I'm now at my third university. And for each of the places I've been hired, the fact that I work in philosophy of religion has been part of the reason I've gotten hired, which is really, really unusual. So <laughs> I'm a bit of an outlier in that respect. So you, uh, you work in free will. In fact, I think your first book was on free will. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can clear something up for me, Kevin, because I'm, I'm really puzzled about free will. So let me set up the puzzle. Uh, I have a brain and a body. Presumably the brain and body follows physical laws. It doesn't seem like, at least from our understanding of physics, that there's a lot of deviation from those physical laws, at least at the macroscopic level. How can I possibly have free will if I'm, to, to put it in a word, a physical object? I think there's two parts of that question. There's the part about physics and there's the part about free will. So let me say a bit about each of those and then I'll try to bring them together. 
Um, the part about physics, and I'm going to answer this part or address this part by telling the story. A number of years ago, I was in China at a conference on um, uh, the intersection of philosophy and science and religious belief, and there were two Nobel Prize winning physicists that were part of the conference, and there was another physicist there who they expected at some point will earn a Nobel Prize in physics. And after the, the two Nobel Prize winning physicists gave a talk and the, sort of the changeover between sessions afterwards, I went up to them and I just said, okay, I'm a philosopher. I work on free will. And one of these leading questions is uh, the relationship between free will and causal determinism, the thesis that everything that happens obeys deterministic physical laws such that the slice of the entire physical universe at one point is entailed by a proposition describing the entire physical universe in the past, plus all the relevant laws of nature. Um, and so the compatibility question uh, in free will is basically whether or not free will is compatible with the thesis of causal determinism. And I, and, and I asked them, just, I said, in your best estimate as Nobel Prize winning physicists, here's how philosophers understand the thesis of causal determinism. Of the top 100 Physicists in the world, what percentage of those hundred do you think think the thesis of causal determinism is true? And they chuckled and they said, maybe two. So actually, I think if you look at what the physics says, right, um, it's not clear that the fact, uh, if it is a fact that we're entirely physical object, entails that we follow completely deterministic physical laws, right, just on the, on the physics side. Um, so it's not obvious to me that that kind of thesis is true. Um, now the free will part. Um, well, whether or not free will is compatible with the thesis of causal determinism depends apart in large part on what free will is. And a lot of my research over the years has been looking at what exactly it is, what are different conceptions of free will. There are some philosophers, Peter Van Inwagen at Notre Dame is probably best known for this position who defines free will just as the ability to do otherwise in identical situations. And so on Van Inwagen's view of what it would mean to be able to do otherwise, uh, he thinks we have to hold the entire uh, physical past and the laws of nature fixed. So if um, free will just is the ability to do otherwise given the entire past and the physical laws and those physical laws are deterministic, then we sort of ruled out our having free will right at the beginning. Um, but that might not be the best way to think about what free will is. And so in my work, I prefer a view that uh, uh, an approach to free will that cares more about what is the origin or the source of how or how our purportedly free choices come about. Um, and these are what I call sourcehood views. And I think that you could have sourcehood views even if uh, determinism is true, uh, if compatibilism is true. And so I think that there are a number of different views about even uh, the nature of free will that are independent of whether or not the relationship to, to physics is deterministic. If we pick up the, the question of free will, uh, it seems like even granting that we have free will on Earth, which we may or may not, uh, there's the question of the afterlife. And at least in the Christian tradition, so this isn't specific to religious traditions across the board, or it's very specific to Christianity, but I've long wondered, having grown up in a, um, how it is that you can have um, free will in heaven without sin. So you might think like, 
Um, on the Christian view, at least, people on earth have free will, and sometimes they're going to abuse that free will. They're going to mistreat others and, and do things they shouldn't do. And if we think, well, people have, would have free will in heaven or some sort of an afterlife, uh, wouldn't you expect people to misuse their free will there too? So I think a lot here depends on sort of how much we want to build into the, the, the picture of the afterlife that we're talking about. Um, I actually think a lot of your question could also come up in the Islamic tradition um, and some of the debates that t take place in, in Christian theology about the relationship between free will and the afterlife also come up there. Um, I think that some of them come up in those parts of Judaism that affirm resurrection. Um, so I, I, I do think that this particularly comes up in the tra Christian tradition. I don't think it uh, only comes up in the Christian tradition. But even there, a lot of it depends on like how much we pack into the understanding of heaven. And so in a series of papers written with Tim Paul, uh, he and I say that heaven uh, on the Christian tradition is perhaps best thought of as roughly the place in which none greater can be conceived, right? It's sort of like an Anselmian picture of heaven. And so on our view, right, uh, compare sort of two possible understandings of the afterlife. Uh, both of them have all the great making, or, you know, like all the good things that we would want in heaven. They've all got unlimited coffee supplies. They've all got... Um, uh, the most wonderful beaches that don't have sand that sticks to your body and don't have too many people around so you can read books undistracted, right? So they've got all the great things. Uh, but in one of the heavens, right, there's the ability to sin. And in the other of these, there's, there's not. And then we consider which of these two purported views of, of heaven is greater. And Tim and I think that the second, right, the, the place in which uh, sin isn't even a live possibility. Even if we don't actually sin, this is going to be a better place. So in our view, heaven's got to be the kind of place where uh, not only isn't there sin, but the people that inhabit heaven are the sort of people for whom sin isn't even a live option. Um, but this isn't how everybody uh, thinks about heaven. Um, John Donnelly, one of my former colleagues, had, has a couple of papers on heaven where he explicitly argues that he heaven can have sin. You could fall from heaven, given the kinds of considerations that you're thinking about. But Tim and I think uh, if heaven is supposed to be that place in which none greater can be conceived, a better place is one in which we can't sin than if we could. Um, um, and so what we try to do in these series of papers uh, is to give an account of free will such that it is compatible with our having free will in heaven and yet not being able to sin. And the way that we approach that is um, both of us are roughly virtue ethicists. We think that our character shapes our actions and that our actions over time shape our character. And so we think that part of the proper exercise of our free will in this lifetime is to form our characters such that certain evil actions, vicious actions, sinful actions that used to be possible for us aren't possible anymore. Right? So it used to be uh, the kind of thing that I could do because I was say less committed to spending time with my partner. Um, so, so go back in time to when we were just dating and, and uh, my partner loves to run. I find running to be absolutely uh, uh, unpleasant for its own sake. So when we were first dating, if my partner would have said, Kevin, do you want to go run, want to go running with me? I would have said something like, no, I don't. And in fact, I care about not running more than I care about doing what you want to do. So I'm not going to do it. Right? This, this is probably not 
the, the best advice uh, when you're dating somebody. But now we've been married for a long time and you know, the, the way that I think about these things has shifted. And so I still don't particularly like to run, but I have come to form the character where I recognize for the importance of our marriage, uh, how important it is for me to prioritize doing things that Allison likes to do rather than just what I want to do. And so if she said, Kevin, I really want you to go running with me today. I need to get out of the house. Then there's something important I want to talk with you about. Then right, assuming that the external situation allowed for it, I'd say, okay. And so as I formed my character to be a more responsive partner, a more responsive spouse, then certain things that I used to be able to do, like discount her preferences for the sake of my own physical laziness are no longer options for me, right? Because I weigh the different reasons differently over time. And so we, we shape our character and we shape the kinds of opportunities, the kinds of possible actions that are, are psychologically lives options to us over time by our character formation. Is that making sense so far? Yes. Um, and so there was probably a place, uh, a place in our relationship, uh, say early on when we were dating, that if somebody else had come up to me and said, hey, Kevin, I want to go on a date with you, I would have thought, well, okay, maybe, right? But now uh, we've been married for 23 years. If somebody came up to me and said, I want to go, or somebody other than Allison came up to me and said, I want to go on a date, that's just not going to be uh, uh, something that I consider anymore, right? Like the request will come in. I'll think about what are the goods of dating this person compared with the goods of not dating this person, given that I'm married to Allison. And it's going to be obvious to me what the right choice is going to be, right? So even though there's nothing outside of myself, the laws of physics, perhaps, that wouldn't uh, entail that I couldn't say yes, right? Nobody's engaging in mind control or anything like that. Right, so it's physically possible for me to say yes, but it wouldn't be psychologically possible for me, given my present character, given what I see as the relevant reasons, given how I weigh those reasons to say yes to somebody's request to date. Um, and so over time, by forming our character, certain options that didn't used to be or that used to be live options for us no longer are. And certain other kinds of actions that perhaps didn't used to be live options for us can come to be live options by shaping our character. Now to go back to heaven, this is how Tim and I think that by the time we're in heaven, right, a requirement for entrance into heaven is a morally perfected character because heaven is the place in which none greater can be conceived. And if we're comparing, say, two places, one of which has morally perfect people in it and one of which doesn't have morally perfect people in it, we might think, the place with only morally perfect people is better. And so in heaven, we understand what all the relevant goods are. We understand that, say, rejecting the temptation is less good than resisting the temptation, that uh, sinning is less good than not sinning. And our characters are such that we, we weigh those reasons properly and we choose on the basis of that proper weighing. And so on our view, by the time we get to heaven, we have perfected our character such that those kinds of sinful choices won't be live opportunities, live options for us, not because of anything external to us, but because of the character that we have freely formed over time. So you talked a lot about character, and this ties into a, a question I had for you uh, with respect to 
uh, the famous Situationist Challenge. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, uh, there's a philosopher by the name of John Doris who argues very roughly that we don't really have, um, there's no evidence for character traits, at least of the kind that you were talking about. There's rather these sort of situational dispositions. So maybe um, if I'm, say, a parishioner at service, I act with humility and honesty. But maybe when I'm on the job and the boss isn't looking, I might like, you know, steal an extra 20 minutes for lunch or, mm-hmm. you know, take home some notepads. Is character, do you think character uh, attributions can be a real thing? You seem to. And are you worried about this sort of situationist stuff that, that people talk about in the literature? I, I am concerned about that because I, in, in, in my work, both with respect to ethics, with respect to free will, with respect to uh, the different areas that I work on, I want to take seriously what we have good reason to think about from contemporary science, contemporary psychology, these different things. Um, I think that Doris sometimes uh, overstates things, uh, right? So the title of his book is Lack of Character. Um, I don't think that the, the research that he, sug- you know, that he points to in that book, um, even as, as sort of like eye-opening as it is, I don't think that it shows that we don't have character. Um, it doesn't show, I mean, at most it would show that like we don't have these really robust virtue uh, uh, traits that traditional virtue ethics has thought. But it wouldn't show that we can't have those traits, right? At most it would show that given what we know about present psychology and what we can read about people's character off from these studies that nobody has those. And so I think that Doris's work probably shows that a lot of us have less good character than we think we do, that our character traits are a lot more sensitive to external factors than we think that they are. Um, But all of that is consistent, I think, uh, still with a broadly virtue theoretic approach to ethics. Um, Christian Miller has done some really good work uh, showing, I think, how the situation is challenged isn't quite as dire as Doris thinks that it is. Robert Adams has some nice work on this as well. Um, So for example, in Christian Miller's work, he argues for sort of a mixed trait, uh, right? So uh, view. It's not the case that we have these really robust traits like honesty in all situations, right? There might be different kinds of honesty and and we might be mixed with respect to the kind of honesty that we have, right? So maybe I have honesty towards my partner, but not honesty towards my employer and I steal the notepads or or something like that. Um, But even if that is true as a psychological description of most of us now, that doesn't, so far as I can tell, say anything about what kind of character it's possible for us to develop, particularly as we go through the character formation process or as we go through uh, what in the Christian tradition is called the sanctification process, where we come to have the kinds of character that we think we are required to have. And so even if Doris is right that none of us have those traits now, and I don't think that the literature really shows that, uh, but even if it didn't show that, it wouldn't show that we couldn't have that kind of character trait uh, in heaven, because heaven's a very different sort of place. All that it would follow, I think, from Doris's work is that, well, I'm not yet fit for heaven, and maybe nobody is. Um, but I see, so far as I can tell, there's nothing in the Christian view of heaven that uh, would require any of us to have morally perfect characters in the present life. Maybe there's at least one disclaimer there, right? The incarnation makes these kind of conversations difficult. So we're going to bracket, bracket the incarnation. Maybe there's at least one morally perfect human nature, you know? And, and 
Uh, but apart from that, a lot of the Christian traditions say we actually have really good reason to think that none of us do yet have that kind of moral character, right? Sin is everywhere, not only in our individual lives, it's in the social systems that we have set up. It's sort of built into the fabric of our lives together. And so, yes, perhaps it's the case that none of us have a perfected moral character yet, but that doesn't show that we can't get to have a, right, a, a better approaching perfect character. And it certainly doesn't show that we can't eventually have that, particularly with respect to something like the Christian view of the afterlife. Uh, so to switch gears a little bit, um, you work in philosophy of religion. I take it on at least one view in philosophy of religion, sort of the naturalist or atheist view, a very compelling reason to be an atheist is the problem of evil. There seems like a lot of suffering uh, both caused by human agents and natural causes. And it's not just that there's suffering in the world, right? Like sometimes suffering can be good. It can, it can um, initiate growth. Um, you might suffer when you undergo surgery, for example, or face a tragedy and become a stronger person. There's lots of suffering that just looks pointless. Mm-hmm. And philosophers, and specifically theistic philosophers, have grappled with this for a long time. And I'm curious what you think the most plausible response is, the, most, the best explanation a theist could give for why there's so much seemingly pointless suffering? Yeah, I think that's, actually, that's one of those questions that uh, back when I was answering your, your, your first question about why I became a philosopher, right? uh, back in my freshman year of college, I was trying to think about the problem of evil. And this, that's one of those questions that people didn't often like me to ask in hard sorts of ways. And I, wait, philosophy gets, lets me do that? You know, so that's something I've been thinking about for, for, for quite a long time. On my view, um, coming up with a solution to the problem of evil is going to be a multifarious and multifaceted thing. Because I think that the problem of evil is multifaceted, right? So we sometimes talk about the problem of evil. And I don't think that there is one and only one problem of evil. I think there's a bunch of interconnected problems of evil. And so if that's the case, then we should expect our response to the problem of evil to also be multifaceted. There certainly do seem to be a number of evils that look to be gratuitous, right? That they don't serve a greater good or bring about a worse evil. Some of them come about from humans just not having the kind of character we were talking about, right? People make bad choices and sometimes appear to to be malicious on purpose. Sometimes they come about from ignorance, but there's also things like earthquakes, right? Or or floods or just all kinds of things that cause a lot of suffering. Um, And I think that our response to the problem of evil has to take seriously the fact that a lot of these sufferings do look to be gratuitous and uh, that we might have to explain different kinds of evils in different ways, right? So um, the free will defense is probably the most famous response to at least the problem of moral evil, right? Evil that people use their free will to inflict on others. And I think that that's going to be a significant, though perhaps not the entire explanation for moral evils. Uh, But when we start thinking about things like natural evils, right? it's not clear to me that uh, human agency and free will is going to explain all of that. You framed this in terms of what's often called the evidential problem of evil, right? In terms of what kinds of reasons do we have for thinking that God does or does not exist. And one of the things that sometimes surprises my students is when we get to the evidential problem of evil, I ask them to sort of like 
think about all the reasons they have for being a theist, right? And like add them all together and, and let's try to figure out like what the credence is. How, how rational is it for us to believe in theism given all the positive reasons that we have for believing in, in, in a deity? Right. And since different people have different reasons, the exact credence that we're going to give to it is going to be something different. Right. So like, say it's 0.75. Okay. So you add in all the various arguments that you think are good arguments to some degree or other. Uh, and we figure out some kind of calculation that allows us to do it. You might say, okay, I've got a 0.75 credence in, in, in theism. Now we start thinking about evil. Right. And I think that uh, as we think about the evidential problem of evil, a lot, of the, a lot of the evil that we see does seem to be gratuitous. It looks like it's the kind of thing that doesn't contribute to a greater good or prevent a worse evil. And so I think that um, our credence in theism ought to go down given the problem of evil. And so maybe I had a 0.75 and maybe evil brings me down to a 0.63. If it brings me down to a 0.63 credence, notice that I still have more reason to believe that theism is true rather than theism is false. And so it could still be rational for me to be a theist. But it might be that for some other people that have just been through worse evils, right? I've, I've lived a comparatively sheltered life. And even though some bad stuff has happened, right, on the whole, my, my life has, has been pretty comfortable. Um, but it might be somebody else that's gone through something much, much worse than I have. Right? The, the evil that they are directly aware of it, uh, brings their credence not down to a 0.63, but to a 0.47, you know, or something like that. In which case, they've got pretty good reason either to be agnostic or maybe even be atheist if it brings it even down uh, further. So I think that the evidential problem of evil does make it uh, less rational to be a theist of any sort. I think it decreases the evidence, the total evidence that we have for theism. I think that there are many people uh, who are agnostics that are very, very rational given the kinds of evidence that they have for being agnostic. And I think that there are a lot of people that are atheists that are uh, following their epistemic resources where, where they lead given their evidence bases. So I think that there are lots of people perhaps that are atheists uh, that are rational in, in their atheism. In a sense, we've been talking about um epistemic reasons to believe in God or not, right? So you, mm -hmm. you might list like, you know, the fine tuning argument, or maybe you've had a religious experience. It seems like you've experienced God. Um, and then you, you talked about um, balancing that out with, you know, suffering. So those seem like evidential reasons to believe or not believe in God. Are there any good, in your opinion, prudential or practical reasons to believe in God? Like, so you might think um, maybe being a theist allows you to have much more fulfilling relationships um, to have to steal your resolve in the face of obstacles, um, give give your life a sense of purpose and meaning, and that might be a reason to cultivate belief in God, even if you're say fifty fifty on the evidence. Mm -hmm. So sometimes religious believers will say something like, "If God doesn't exist, then there's no morality, and so because morality is important individually and communally, this gives us a practical, prudential reason to be theists." Um, I'm not particularly persuaded by that argument. Um, I'm more of a Platonist with respect to sort of moral truths. Um, and even, so I think that God exists. And I think that uh, given the kind of being that I take God to be, that if God exists, God necessarily exists. Uh, and so 
thinking about what the world would be like if God didn't exist, given that I think that God necessarily exists, is right to, to think in counter-possibles, and we have to be careful how we do that. Uh, but I think that even if God didn't exist, there would be such a thing as goodness. There would be such a thing as compassion. There would be such a thing as, as um, hospitality, for instance. Um, and so one kind of uh, prudential argument that is often given for religious belief, I think is a bad argument, right? This idea that it's prudential for the sake of, of moral goodness uh, to believe in God, even if God doesn't exist. I think that a lot of the other prudential reasons get really, really complicated as soon as we recognize that we're not comparing one picture of God to the non-existence of God, right? But there are lots of different pictures about what God is like. Um, so if the only two options were something like Christianity and atheism, uh, then how we evaluate uh, Pascal's wager, right? Sort of what are the, the prudential reasons for believing in God uh, are, might be pretty easy to do, right? So on an overly simplified picture of this, uh, we could either believe that the Christian God exists or believe that the Christian God doesn't exist. And we can set that up in a square of opposition with the Christian God does exist versus the Christian God doesn't exist. And so we've got four options, right? And, the, and Pascal's wager goes something like this. If God doesn't exist and you believe God doesn't exist, you get it right. If God does exist and you believe God exists and align yourself with, I mean, uh, belief in God and aligning oneself with God are obviously two different things. Um, but if we believe that God exists and align ourselves with God and God does exist, then we get it right. So we're comparing what happens if we believe God exists and he doesn't versus if we believe that God doesn't exist and he does. And what Pascal wants to say is that, um, well, if we believe that God does exist and we give up certain kinds of pleasures that we might otherwise want to participate in, um, right, we, we give up some, you know, like some what we might think of as vicious or sinful pleasures, you know, but if, on the other hand, we believe that God doesn't exist, and he does, and we're wrong about that, and the afterlife depends upon whether or not we believed in God and aligned ourselves with it, right, then we have a lot more to lose. And so there's this trade-off. But I also think that that way of thinking about Pascal's wager is, again, overly simplistic, because we're not just making the trade-off between the Christian God and atheism, right? If we want to think about religious belief, well, there's Judaism. There's Islam, there's Christianity, there's Hinduism, there's right, uh, at least some forms of Buddhism which are taken to be theistic. Uh, you've got native religions and all sorts of, you've got Zoroastrianism, you, right? And, and so there, sort of the, the decision matrix becomes a lot more complicated, right? Like, what are the pr uh, prudential reasons for believing in Christianity if in fact something like Manichaeanism is true? Versus what are the prudential reasons for believing in Manichaeanism if something like Christianity is true, right? And, and the matrices there get uh, a lot more complicated. So what I think that we have to do in these cases is we have to sort of take in, given what we know, all of the evidence, including sort of the, the, right, all, the, the sum of all of our reasons, both our evidential reasons and our prudential reasons, and, and we just see where we think the over, right, where the, the balance of those reasons lead us. And when I do that, um, I think the balance of them leads to something like theism, 
when I compare the different sorts of theism, the Christian view of the incarnation, I think is particularly attractive, even though it makes math difficult, uh, because it looks like we have one thing that equals two things. But if we think about um, uh, uh, Christianity has certain kinds of resources for thinking about things that other particular religious traditions don't have, right, and vice versa. Uh, for me, I think that Christianity is, is the religious picture that makes the most sense of the various sorts of overarching reasons that I have. But I understand that that's gonna be shaped by my own history, my own understanding. Other people are gonna weigh those things differently. And so I think that we have to make the best sense of the world that we can, but I'm also a fallibilist. And so my students are sometimes surprised when I say, well, I think God exists, but I'm not certain of it. And I could be wrong about God exists. Given that I think Christianity commits me to more things than just theism does, I'm even less sure of specifically Christianity than I am about theism in general, right? Because Christianity is theism plus monotheism plus the incarnation plus the Trinity. Um, so I'm less certain of Christianity than I am um, theism. I am a Christian, uh, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, but I have to live my life in what I think is the best overarching package of reasons that I have. And for me, that best overarching packet of reasons includes Christianity. But recognizing that um, I certainly have, do not have certainty, and that I don't necessarily, I, I certainly don't think that just because somebody rejects my particularly, my particular package of religious beliefs, that they're irrational or stupid or vicious or immoral or something like that, right? I think that reasonable non-belief is, is very, very possible. So you've implicitly um, alluded to intellectual humility in various mm -hmm. ways. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the role of intellectual humility, uh, both in a religious life but also more generally. Yeah, I mean, I think that intellectual humility is both one of these really, really important virtues uh, and also one that our general culture doesn't uh, make particularly easy for us to foster. <laughs> our current uh, political climate, our current um, uh, right, use of certain kinds of social media, right? I don't think that politics or social media is the problem, but it can amplify certain kinds of voices that encourage us not to, to foster intellectual humility. Psychology suggests uh, that as soon as we own something, we find it more valuable, right? So psychologists do these kinds of tests where they, um, you fill out a questionnaire and then you can either pick a coffee mug or say $2 and they measure what percentage of people take the $2 versus what percentage of the people take the coffee mug. And then as the people that take the coffee mug uh, walk away, they have, in some of these studies, they have somebody come out and they're like, oh, that's a great coffee mug. Here, I'll give you $10 for it. And, and this study suggests that once you own the coffee mug, you think it's worth more than it was, right, when you, uh, when you were given the op opportunity to take either the money uh, or the coffee mug. And I think this is true of our beliefs too. So that once a belief, we identify with it, then we are less likely to be particularly rational with respect to how we evaluate that belief. Um, so this means, for instance, that the fact that I'm a Christian and I think that Christianity is really important for my self-identity probably makes it right, easier for me to be engaged in self-deception with respect to how I weigh the evidence about Christianity. I think that's true. 
Um, and so I think that basically everything that we do in life, given that very few things in life are certain, require us to acknowledge that we could be wrong about them, seek out evidence to the best that we can about what the contrastive explanations might have going for them, to do what we can to evaluate that evidence both individually and collectively as best we can. So I think that, um, so in philosophy, for instance, we're encouraged to write as if we've got the answers. And probably every philosophical essay should come with a footnote at the end, right before the gratitude footnote, that says, this is currently how I see things to the best of my understanding, but anything and perhaps everything in this paper could be wrong, right? I think that, that that's probably what most of us actually mean, but that's certainly not how we write, given social pressures and right and, and journals probably wouldn't appreciate those sorts of footnotes but i think something similar is also true just of life in general right so most of the beliefs that we have either about history or about how science works or about politics or about right any of these things um we probably in many cases have good reasons for thinking that we for thinking those things that we do but we also need to recognize that just because the belief is ours makes it easier for us to engage in self-deception about that belief. And so we need to have humility, uh, both for our own sake, but also for the sake of how these beliefs play out in social uh, settings. So I think about this a lot as a parent. We've got three kids. And I want to be careful that the sorts of uh, beliefs I pass on to my children don't inherit my own biases. And so part of being a good parent is encouraging our, our children to think carefully about their beliefs and giving them the intellectual space to differ from us on even important issues. And so for me, all of that is rooted in how important intellectual humility is for the sake, not only of philosophy, not only for the sake of religious beliefs, but something for the sake of like living together in community or even raising families. That actually dovetails nicely with my follow-up question. It seems like intellectual humility has um, obvious application in intellectual endeavors. You know, scientists and philosophers, uh, people do policy, uh, maybe even when you go to the, the voting booth. But I wonder if, do you think cultivating intellectual humility could also improve our personal relationships? I certainly think it's possible, uh, especially on sort of the, the weak logical possibility sense of possible. But I think that, yeah, that's very, very often the case. Uh, let me think of an example. So suppose that I disagree with a colleague about what we both take to be an important moral issue. Uh, um, say the morality of eating meat. And so it might be that, well, meat tastes good. And I've got an invested interest in not finding the moral arguments for vegetarianism to be persuasive, for instance. But if I recognize that my colleague, perhaps a colleague who has thought about this longer and more carefully than I have, because this particular colleague actually works in food supply ethics, animal ethics, then I might think, you know what? Well, here's somebody that actually I think is smart, cares about important matters, and might actually have better reasons to think through certain arguments than I have. So what I need to do in that case is, again, right, try to foster the intellectual humility to hear and to respond properly and to evaluate those sorts of arguments rather than just sort of knee-jerk rejecting them. And so I certainly think that intellectual humility plays out in 
how I inter interact with my colleagues, how I, inter I interact with my students, how I interact with my, my children again. Um, and so it's not clear to me that there's any part of my life that is immune from the need for intellectual humility. And then if I think that part of uh, what matters is becoming a certain kind of person, right, it's really important to have a good moral character. What does a good moral character look like? And so, right, if I have the wrong picture of what a good moral character looks like, and I succeed in forming the character that I thought was important, that I've succeeded in forming the wrong sort of character. And so here's a place where, when we think about the, mor the, the, the moral project of becoming the kinds of people that we think it's important to be, intellectual humility plays a role even here. I've got another colleague uh, who works uh, in the virtue tradition and uh, does so particularly from, um, sort of medieval approaches. So Rebecca DeYoung has a wonderful book that I love to teach called Glittering Vices. And there's a new edition coming out in about a month and I'm really looking forward to the second edition. Um, and when, in, in her book, she talks about one of these vices, or uh, uh, when she's talking about pride, sort of the, the tendency that many of us have to overvalue ourselves in lots of ways, right? And so there's gonna be a, a kind of intellectual pride. One of the corrective virtues that she talks about in the medieval tradition is eubelia. It is the disposition to take good counsel, right? And so I think that part of becoming the right sort of person is knowing who to look to, where to get good input on these, uh, the moral formation project for ourselves. And if I think that I have all the answers, then I'm not gonna look for good counsel because I think I've got all the answers and I don't need anybody else telling me the kind of person that I ought to become. And so I think part of being intellectually humble is in fact, listening to, looking to, reaching out to and seeking to learn from people that have different and perhaps better views about the kinds of people that we ought to become. So it turns out that uh, you're an agent, I'm an agent. Mm -hmm. uh, we navigate the world, we have goals and plans. Um, I take in information, you take in information. And I know you work in, um, agency. And I'm wondering to what extent, um, broadly speaking, those things, th those abilities that I have as an agent are intrinsic to me, mm -hmm. things that just I carry with me wherever I go, or they're a product of the environment which I find myself in. So maybe social support, the physical environment, the policy structure, there's all kinds of ways in which you might think that my agency depends on my ecology. Certainly. Um, whether or not I think carefully about, to pick up on the earlier example, the moral arguments for vegetarianism depends in part on my familiarity with how food supply actually provides meat for folks. It is that introduce me to the arguments for vegetarianism if I have uh, faculty that assign those sorts of things. So sometimes the ability to engage certain sets of reasons is going to depend upon the ecology, the social situation that we find ourselves in, right? If nobody has ever written any books on moral arguments for vegetarianism, it's gonna be a lot harder, perhaps impossible for me to ever consider carefully moral arguments for vegetarianism. And so at least with respect to the reasons that we have, right? A lot of those reasons are going to be given to us by other folks. Uh, and so 
reasons depend upon the, the situations and the communities and the ecology. Uh, in some of my more recent work, I've been looking at what we can learn about agency in general from disability. And here I think we have even stronger reasons to think that human agency is intrinsically social or ecological in nature. Uh, and so one of the really interesting examples um, and one of the first people to point this out was Oliver Sacks in the book uh, Awakenings that became the, the relatively famous movie with Robin Williams. And so Sacks and his work on Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease uh, had found people that their Parkinson's had made them unable to walk in some sense for at least a decade, right? So the people would, one of the things that Parkinson's uh, makes it hard to do is initiate gross mu muscle movement. And so initially people with Parkinson's will find themselves having tremors and they can concentrate really hard on limiting the tremors, but they can't keep up that concentration for very long. But over time, some people with Parkinson's find themselves unable to bring themselves to walk anymore, right? They're, they're trying to and their muscles just don't do it. Well, what Sachs realized is you have some Parkinson's patients that haven't walked for say 10 years and they might be there in a care facility or a nursing home and then the fire alarm goes off. And what happens is the person stands up and runs out of the nursing home, right? Which is really perplexing. There's a sense in which their body hasn't changed at all. What has changed is, right, certain sort of external stimuli. And so what we know about Parkinson's is that oftentimes your muscles are both Right, your contrary muscles are both contracting. And so this is why it's hard uh, to say stand up because the relevant muscle groups that you would use to stand up out of a wheelchair or out of a bed or something like that, right? The standing up muscles are contracting and the sitting down muscles are contracting uh, at the same time. And so that actually keeps a certain degree of muscle tone and muscle uh, performance such that when this really unusual stimuli, the fire alarm goes off, there's something about their nervous system that now stops working against itself and the person stands up and runs out. Um, and so take that person and you ask the question, right? say that that person's name is Sam, can Sam stand up? Well, in one sense, yes, right? The fire alarm went off and Sam stood up. But in another sense, can Sam stand up depends upon whether or not the fire alarm is going off, right? And so our abilities are in part a function of the kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. And so I think that most of us then what we can do, not only in terms of the reasons, but in the exercise of our abilities, particularly the, the patterns of development with character formation we do over time, depend a lot more on the environments that we find ourselves in than just facts about us. We're a lot less autonomous and individualistic and atomistic in terms of what it means to be human than we often think. Is there anything that you're currently working on that you're excited about? Uh, actually, the, the current main project that I'm working on is a book on uh, how different di kinds of disabilities affect human agency. Um, and so I've got a chapter on executive function impairments like in Parkinson's. Uh, that example came from a paper that I published. I've got a paper on how emotion, how certain disabilities that make it harder to understand and regulate your emotions might be related to virtue formation. Uh, and so the goal is to take uh, these papers and add in additional papers, uh, one on intellectual disability, uh, perhaps one on communicative disabilities like autism, and to look at the, the range of ways that different kinds of disabilities affect human agency. And in fact, what we can learn about human agency in general from 
these kinds of what David Shoemaker calls marginal agency, right? When we often think about agents, we think about fully grown, non-disabled adults that don't have mental illness or disability or, right? Uh, and, and I think that we sometimes skew how we think about agency by looking at just those sorts of cases. And so the goal is to draw on what, um, again, Shoemaker has called kinds of marginal agency, places where we think agency isn't quite as prototypical. And I think that we can learn lots of important things, even about agency in general from these sorts of cases of ag human agency involving disability. So the goal is to try to, to, to turn all of this into a book uh, over the next year or so. Is there some place that folks can visit if they want to learn more about your work? Uh, sure. If you go to kevintempe.com, I've got a website, and a lot of my papers that I have published are in, uh, available on the scholarship tab on that. Um, or if there are people that uh, either want a paper and they can't find a paper, they're not sure what they want to look at, if people send me an email, um, I'm happy to follow up with any of your listeners that way as well. And the easiest way to do that is just kevin.tempe at calvin.edu. So if anybody has further interest in any of the stuff that I've said or any of my research, um, what I've done before, that's also another way to, to reach me. This has been very interesting, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Fun to, fun to be here and to talk about these things.